Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 11, 1910-11 vs South Africa, Heels of Runs. With the victorious Australians returning from England, the Sheffield Shield season of 1909-10 was able to get underway with the state sides at close to full strength. The Shield was won by South Australia for the first time in 16 years, their second victory overall. South Australian captain Clem Hill, who had skipped the 1909 Ashes, was in outstanding form, scoring 609 runs in only three matches. His three centuries were all big ones, with scores of 176, 205 and 185 in the first innings of each game. The bowling of South Australia also excelled. 1909 tourists Witty and O'Connor took 15 and 14 wickets each, but the addition of former England player Jack Crawford gave them an edge. Crawford had moved to South Australia after a dispute with his county, Surrey. In the three matches he played, he took 20 wickets, including 7 for 92 in the second innings of their away match against New South Wales, followed by an unbeaten 73 that gave South Australia the win that secured the title for them. Among other 1909 tourists, Armstrong and Barsley showed continued good form, both averaging 40 for their shield sides. Following the Shield season, an Australian side visited New Zealand for some first-class matches, including two against New Zealand 11s. The New Zealanders had originally wanted the 1909 tourists to visit prior to their trip to England, but the board resisted. The Australian side was led by Warwick Armstrong and featured Test players Bardsley, Hopkins and Witty. Future Test players Charlie Calloway, Edgar Mayne, Sid Emery and Dave Smith also featured on the tour. The Australians did not lose a match on the 10-match tour, including victories in both games against representative New Zealand 11s. It was the first time Armstrong had led an Australian side, but would not be the last. The next season, 1910-11, was to see the first visit to Australia by the third ever Test nation, South Africa. The tour by the South Africans was a key part of the deal struck by the Australian delegation to the International Cricket Conference in order for them to agree to the triangular tournament that would take place in 1912. The board pushed for this tour because it would mean more test matches, leading to more revenue for the board under the agreements developed with the state associations. The more revenue the board had, the more power it would wield, especially in its battles with the players. Since playing and defeating South Africa 2-0 in the series played as Australia headed home from England in 1902, South Africa had showed definite improvement. The next series that the South Africans had played was in 1905-06, when England toured for five tests. The English were fresh off their convincing Ashes win in 1905 and, although the team was not as strong as the side that had won the Ashes, it was still expected to handle South African side, as all English sides had done before. However, this did not reckon with the first great development in South African cricket, the googly. Reggie Swartz, who had played for Middlesex, had learned how to bowl the googly from its creator, Bernard Bosanquay. Taking this back to South Africa in 1904, he had taught the delivery to others, including Aubrey Faulkner, Bert Vogler and Gordon White. With this cadre of googly bowlers, the English were destroyed by their own creation 4-1. The first test was a one-wicket victory for the South Africans, which was their first victory in tests. A 93 not out from Dave North seeing them home. The other three victories were by much larger margins, demonstrating that South Africa would be taken far more seriously as a test nation from now on. A tour of England for the South Africans followed in 1907. Whilst not the first tour of England by a South African side, it was the first where tests were scheduled. With more players to choose from, the English sides were much stronger than those that had visited South Africa and the tourists lost the series 1-0, with the two draws being dominated by England. Despite the test result, the tourists won 21 of 31 matches on tour and Schwartz and Vogler were recognised as Crickers of the Year by Wisden. 
Another English touring side visited South Africa as the Sheffield Shield season of 1909-10 was taking place. Again, this was not the best side England could produce, but did feature players of the quality of Hobbs, Rhodes, Blythe and Woolley. The South Africans were again successful at home, winning 3-2 in the test matches. Aubrey Faulkner announced himself as a class player, leading the batting averages with 545 runs at 60, whilst also taking 29 wickets at 22 with his leg breaks and googlies. Vogler claimed 36 wickets as well, although the other googly bowler Schwartz struggled. The South African home test though was still being played on matting carpet stretched out over a field rather than a grass pitch. This gave him an advantage against tourists unfamiliar with the surface, but also meant that he did not have as much experience on the sort of pitches that they would face in Australia. After some disagreement over the money that the South Africans will be entitled to for touring, the schedule was decided for the inaugural visit by the Springboks, playing for the first time as a unified nation as the four colonies had united earlier in 1910. The South Africans were able to put together as close to a stronger team as possible for the tour. The major absence was that of Gordon White, one of the googly bowlers, as well as a batsman who had scored over 500 runs in the 1905-06 victory due to work commitments. A team of 15 was selected, led by their wicketkeeper Percy Sherwell. The three other googly bowlers, Faulkner, Schwartz and Vogler, all toured. Batsmen Hathorne, Norse and Sinclair had all played against Australia in 1902, with the latter having scored two centuries in that series, although his run scoring had since declined. Others included Sibley Tipsnoke, who had taken 26 wickets in 1905-06 with his right arm medium pace, leg spinning all-rounder Sid Pegler, and right-handed batsman Tom Campbell, Mick Commonil, Louis Strickler and Omarod Pearce. The 15th member of the squad had been the best player that had featured against the Australians in 1902, Charlie Llewellyn. Llewellyn had taken 25 wickets at 17, as well as scoring a 90 in that series, but had not featured for South Africa since due to issues surrounding his heritage and the general racism that was already a major feature of South African cricket, although Australia was not immune to these attitudes either, particularly when it came to Indigenous cricketers. Llewellyn had been a feature of Hampshire in the year since, being one of Winston's Cricketers of the Year in 1910, but left the county after that year. This meant he was available for the Tour of Australia and he accepted an invitation. The South Africans arrived in October, playing their first match in November against the current holders of the Sheffield Shield, South Australia. It started inauspiciously, with the visitors being bowled out for 133. They managed to only concede a 50-run lead though, as Schwartz took six wickets. This was then followed by an innings of 507, with Stricker scoring a century and Norse an unbeaten double. The locals were then bowled out cheaply, with Schwartz taking another five to make it 11 for the match, giving the tourists a winning start. The promise of the first match didn't play out though. They lost to Victoria by five wickets, followed by a three-wicket loss to New South Wales, where young New South Wales all-rounder Callaway took five wickets in the first innings. They bounced back by beating the weaker Queensland side by 122 runs before drawing a match against an Australian 11 in Brisbane. When selecting their side for the first test, taking place in Sydney in early December, they chose Pierce to make his test debut, leaving out Commonweal, Campbell and Pegler, whilst Hathorne had fallen ill after the first two matches and would only feature intermittently on the tour from then. With the retirements of Noble and Lever, the Australian selectors had some choices to make to determine the lineup for the first test. From those who had played in the last test of 1909 against England, Trumper, Bardsley, Ransford, Armstrong, McCartney, Carter and Cotter were all retained. Left armer Bill Whitty, who had been on the tour, but only featured in the first test, was also brought in, whilst fellow South Australian Algie Gears played his first test since the 1905 tour of England. Callaway, who had gained attention through steadily improving performances in shield cricket, was then chosen to make his debut. The final space went to the man who had skipped the 1909 tour for family reasons and would be chosen to take up the captain's mantle, Clem Hill. Clement Hill was born on the 18th of March 1877 in Hindmarsh, South Australia. 
The son of H.J. Hill, who was the first person to score a century at Adelaide Oval, Hill grew up in a cricket-mad household. He was one of 16 children, eight sons and eight daughters, with six of the brothers playing first-class cricket for South Australia. An all-round sportsman, his score of 360 in an inter-college match in Adelaide in 1893 put him on the path to cricket success, debuting for South Australia that same year. His score of 150 against the touring English side saw him make Harry Trott's team for the 1896 Tour of England, where he made his test debut. He finished third on the tour averages that season and established himself as a fixture of Australian sides from then on. The left hand was able to score effectively all around the wicket and had large reserves of patience, which made it difficult for bowlers to dismiss him. Despite skipping the 1999 tour, no batsman in the history of Test cricket had scored more runs than the 32-year-old Hill, and he was the obvious choice to lead the Australians upon the retirement of Noble. Hill made the perfect start to his captaincy career, winning the toss and choosing to bat on a hard flat pitch. Trumper and Bardsley opened for the Australians, whilst Llewellyn and Sinclair began for the tourists. Both batsmen began with boundaries, with Bardsley cutting Llewellyn and Trumper clipping Sinclair off his legs. There was little threat from the bowling as the Australians started compiling their total. The score reached 43 with a blazing drive from Trumper off Llewellyn, leading to the first bowling change with Schwartz coming on. Bardsley hit him for two boundaries, but the next over cut Sinclair to point where Llewellyn ran out Trumper for 27. The first Australian wicket was down with a score of 52, with the Australian captain coming to the crease. Soon after Hill's arrival, Vogler replaced Sinclair, meaning two googly bowls were in operation. However, on a hard turf pitch, their threat was less pronounced than in other conditions. Both batsmen were able to score freely, able to read the variations comfortably off the pitch. The score rose quickly, reaching 100 after only 65 minutes of batting, with Bardsley bringing up his half-century. Faulkner was also given a turn at the bowling crease, but it had the same impact as his compatriots, with Hill hitting him for boundaries in consecutive overs. Hill was able to reach his own 50 at a run a minute as lunch approached, with the Australians going to the break at 1 for 147, with Bardsley on 61 and Hill 55. Following lunch, Hill quickly passed Bardsley's score. He had complete confidence in his ability to read the length, jumping out and smothering Vogelis and Schwartz's balls with ease. Boundaries came rapidly at both ends, so much so that 200 came up in under 100 minutes. The race for the individual century between the two batsmen was on, with Bardsley winning when he drove Sinclair to the boundary, giving him his third century in as many innings after his effort at the Oval in 1909. Faulkner was brought back, but Hill struck him for eight in his first over. In Faulkner's next over, Bardsley, who was on 111, struck a ball to Zilch at square leg, who dropped the chance after misjudging the flight of the ball. Hill brought up his own century soon after, to loud applause. The partnership had already broken the record for the second wicket, 174 set by Alec Bannerman and JJ Lyons back in 1892. The Australians' total went to 276 before Sherwell turned to the debutant Pierce, the seventh bowler used. Pierce bowled a rank half-tracker to Bardsley, who missed it and was bowled off his pad for 132, made in two and a half hours with 16 boundaries. The partnership between Hill and Bardsley had put on 224, second only in total highest partnership to Hill's effort with Hardigan in 1908. Gers joined his fellow South Australian Hill, who should have been out soon after, but Sherwell missed a simple stumping opportunity. Hill then hit Pierce for two fours in an over, whilst Gers quickly moved into double figures, taking the Australian total past 300. They continued in this vein with little difficulty all the way to team, with Australians going to the break at two for 355, with Hill on 152 and Gers 38. Following tea, Norson Faulkner started for the South Africans. Gers took his score to 46 when he hit Faulkner out to Pierce on the boundary. Pierce missed the catch, with the ball rolling into the boundary to give Gers his first Test 50. The Team 400 came up, whilst both batsmen attacked Norse in particular, taking 13 off one over. However, Gers then fell, with Pierce claiming his second wicket when he bowled Gers for 67, having shared a 144-run partnership in only 64 minutes with his captain. 
Hill moved his score onto 191 before a Yorker from Pierce finally ended his innings. He batted for 200 minutes and hit 18 boundaries in bringing up his highest test score, making an imperious start as test captain. Ransford joined the not-out Armstrong, but a mini collapse followed, with Schwartz bowling Ransford for 11, before doing the same to McCartney for 1. Both batsmen bamboozled by the spin. Debutant Callaway survived until the end of the day with Armstrong, as the Australians finished on 6 for 494, with Armstrong into the 40s. Never had so many runs been scored in a test day. With the Australians in such a strong position, 20,000 attended on the second day hoping to see more run-scoring achievements. However, the South Africans used a break to regroup and came out strong to start the day. In the second over, Armstrong was bowled by Schwartz for 48. The Australians were now 7 for 499. Carter joined Callaway and took the score past 500, but was then stumped for 5 off Schwartz. In the same over, Cotter departed the same way as Carter for a second ball duck. Last man Witty hit Schwartz at three boundaries in two overs before being caught off Sinclair for 15. Not out Callaway had made 14 as the Australians posted a mammoth 528. All bowlers had come in for punishment, but Schwartz lived up to his reputation, taking 5 for 102 and being the only bowler to bowl a maiden, whilst debutant Pierce claimed three somewhat lucky wickets. The South Africans started their response with Stricker and Zulch. They faced the right and left arm combination of Cotter and Witty. Cotter, whose action had become more round arm over time without losing pace, managed to clean bowl both openers, leaving the South Africans 2 for 10. Pierce and Norse combined, with Pierce striking Cotter to the leg boundary. The two bats were able to see off Cotter and managed to make it to lunch without further loss at 2 for 25. Revitalised by the break, Cotter returned to the bowling crease and soon had Pierce caught by Trumper in the slips for 16. Faulkner arrived and started well, taking seven off the first four balls of Cotter's next over. Off the fifth ball, though, Norse departed, caught at second slip. The South Africans were now four for 38. Rain now came steadily down, leaving play to be paused for almost two hours. When the game resumed, the new bats in the well and was clean bowled off the last ball of Cotter's uncompleted over. Cotter reclaimed all five wickets to fall, and his pace was too much for the South Africans to handle. Snook followed, but Witty claimed his first ten wicket when he bowled in for three. The crowd cheered Sinclair to the crease, hoping for some of the big hitting the South African was known for. However, they were left disappointed when it was York for a single by that man Cotter. The South Africans were in disarray, having collapsed to 7 for 49. However, the partnership of Faulkner and new man Schwartz halted the slide. The pair started to play their shots, with both finding boundaries off Cotter. Cotter was then given the break, and Armstrong came on, but Faulkner pulled a long hop to the boundary. He was then caught by Trump at next ball, but the umpire had his arm out for a no ball. Another boundary followed, with Callaway then getting his first turn of the bowling crease. A cut for two by Schwartz saw the 100 raise before he hit two successive balls to the boundary off Callaway. Cotter returned, but wasn't the same threat as earlier in the day. In the final over, Schwartz streakily edged Cotter for four, bringing up his half-century. He ended the day on 52, with Faulkner on 45, the two having shared an even 100-run stand, taking the South Africans to 7 for 140, still trailing by 379 runs. Following the rest day, rain returned and lasted all day, wiping out the third day's play completely. Rain continued to fall up until midday on day four. The umpires inspected the pitch following the ending of the rain and eventually allowed for play. The batsmen resumed, but only six runs could be added before the umpires declared that the light was not good enough for play. Rain followed five minutes later, bringing it close to the fourth day. The players were greeted by clear skies and bright sunshine on day five. This meant play would start on time. The pitch was saturated after two days of almost continuous rain, with the addition of the sun drying it out would make it exceptionally difficult for the batsmen. Schwartz took three off the first brawl to bring up the century partnership, but in his second over he was bowled by Witty for 61. The South African captain arrived at the crease to join Faulkner. The set batsman should have been stumped in the next over, but was let off by Carter. 
After 30 minutes of play, Faulkner brought up his half century. Kaliwia was brought on, but Faulkner struck him for three boundaries in his first over. This was his final act though, as he was caught in the slips off Witty for 62 in the next over. The last man, Vogler, was then bowled first ball by Witty, and in the innings. Sherwell was 8 not out, as the South Africans made 174. Witty had claimed at all three wickets on the day 5 to finish with 4 to 33, whilst Cotter's effort at the beginning saw him earn figures of 6 to 69. With South Africa trailing by 354 runs, Hill had little hesitation in enforcing the follow-on. The batting order was changed, with Sherwell opening with Sinclair. Sherwell started positively, cutting Witty for four in each of his first two overs before hitting him into the members for six. The spectators were hoping for a similar effort from Sinclair. Cotter replaced McCartney and Sinclair struck him for four first ball. However, later in the same over, Cotter clean bowled him for six. Newman Snook nicked his first ball for four. Sherwell then hit consecutive boundaries in the next Witty over, but Cotter claimed his second in the next over, clean bowling Snook. Next in Zulch was soon after run out attempting a quick single. Lunch was then taken immediately, with the South Africans at 3 for 44. Following lunch, Faulkner joined Sherwell, who was 28 not out. The wicket was playing much better after lunch, and Faulkner began with a cut for four off Cotter. Both Armstrong and Callaway were tried, but runs came easily for both batsmen, with Faulkner striking both for boundaries. Sherwell also was building runs quickly, and took eight off an Armstrong over to raise his half-century. The two put on a 50-run partnership, and took the South Africans to 98 before Callaway had Sherwell caught a point, claiming his first test wicket. Sherwell made 60 with 7 boundaries and a 6. Norse came in at 6, bringing up the 100 with runs off Cotter. Faulkner continued going after the bowling, striking Callaway for 2 boundaries in an over. Witty was brought back and struck immediately, with Faulkner skying a ball to deep mid on, where Bardsley took a good catch. Faulkner made 45 with 8 boundaries, with the South Africans having lost half their side for 124. With the departure of Faulkner, the scoring rate slowed. Stricker lasted 20 minutes, but could only manage 4 runs before he was trapped LBW by Witty. Llewellyn replaced him, whilst Norse was then missed at slip in the next over. The 150 was raised with Norse moving into the 20s, mostly compiled with 1s and 2s. He found more fluency when facing McCartney, clipping him to the leg boundary, whilst Llewellyn found the boundary off Witty, with South Africans heading to T at 6 for 169. When play resumed, Llewellyn added a further 7 runs to his score before he was caught at mid-off off Witty for 19. Schwartz then departed for a duck, caught behind in the same over. The South Africans were now 8 for 183 as Pierce joined Norse, who had made his way to 39. Pierce bratted freely, taking the score past 200 and striking multiple boundaries, although he was badly missed at slip by Trumper. Norse then brought up his half century. The pair put on 54 runs before Pierce was run out by Gers for 30. Only three more runs were added before last man Vogler was bowled by Callaway for a duck, ending the match. Norse ended up undefeated on 64 with South Africa's score of 240, meaning the match ended in innings and a 114-run victory for the Australians. Woody took another four wickets to finish with eight for the match, whilst both Cotter and Callaway took two. The South Africans had a series of minor matches before the second test, which was to take place in Melbourne beginning on New Year's Eve. The South Africans made one change, bringing in Pegler in place of Vogler, who had suffered an injured thumb in the first match, whilst the Australians made no change to their winning combination, with leg-break bowler Jimmy Matthews made 12th man. Hill once again won the toss, and on a clear day with a hard MCG pitch, he chose to bat. Trumper and Bardsley opened again, whilst Norse and Snook began for the South Africans. The bowlers posed little threat, and the bats were able to comfortably compile runs, moving to 22 before the burst bowling change was made. Pegler replaced Snook, and Schwartz replaced Norse, but the score went past 50 before the first breakthrough was made, with Trumper edging a ball from Pegler onto his stumps to be bowled for 34. Hill joined Bardsley at 1 for 59. Getting no assistance from the pitch, Schwartz went for 25 runs in only 4 overs before he was replaced by Sinclair, 
The 100 came up off the first ball he bowled, whilst Bardsley brought up his half century shortly after. Hill's first miss hit of the day fell safely between the bowler and mid-off. Seven bowlers were tried in the opening session, but none threatened the batsman, with the Australians going to lunch and one for 144, with Bardsley on 74 and Hill 35. Following lunch, the score rose to 160 before Hill, who had only added four runs to his total, was bowled by Llewellyn. Gers came in and cut his first ball for four, but was out in the same over, bowled off his pads. The Australians were now 3 for 164, which became 4 for 164 as Bardsley edged Sinclair into the slips. He had made 85 runs and hit eight boundaries. McCartney and Ransom combined to add 24 runs, but McCartney then fell for seven, attempting a suicidal run to Llewellyn at mid-off and was caught short of his ground. Hometown hero Armstrong then joined his fellow Victorian Ransford at the crease. They did better than the last few partnerships, with Armstrong cutting his first ball for four and second to square leg for three. The 200 was raised and steady scoring continued to build the total. Ransford brought up a half century and the pair managed to put on 72 runs leading up to team before Ransford ran himself out for 58 after hesitating on a run. He'd hit six boundaries and helped take the scores to 6 to 262 at the break. Following T, Callaway joined Armstrong. The latter was cutting the ball with precision, bringing up his own 50 shortly after the resumption. The score was raised to 309 before Sinclair was brought back, claiming Callaway for 18, smartly caught by Faulkner in the slips. Carter joined Armstrong, who had complete mastery of the bowling, scoring off at nearly every ball he faced. That's what made it surprising when he managed to edge one behind to the keeper off Faulkner, as he had middled everything up to that stage. He'd managed to score 75 runs with five boundaries. The end came quickly after that, with the final two wickets only being able to add 11 more runs. Schwartz and Faulkner claimed a wicket each, with the Australians finishing with a score of 348, a somewhat disappointing total given the nature of the pitch and an ease with which most of the batsmen had handled the bowling. There were still 25 minutes left for the South Africans to bat on the first day. Zulch and Sherwell opened, taking no risks and compiling 17 without loss as stumps were drawn. Following the rest for New Year's Day, play resumed on the 2nd of January. Light rain had fallen overnight, but the wicker was unaffected as play started on time. With Witty off the field dealing with a boil on his neck, Cotter and Armstrong opened the attack. Sherwell did most of the early scoring, doubling his overnight total and reaching 24. He then nicked Cotter into the slips, where Callaway dropped the ball. Next ball was a finer edge snaffle by Carter behind the stumps. The first wicket fell at 34 as Faulkner came in at number 3 and started with the first ball boundary. His score quickly raced ahead of Zulch's, who was only on 10 after an hour at the crease. Zulch was then missed off Armstrong, with Carter dropping the chance. Faulkner continued to score rapidly, finding boundaries on all sides of the wicket. Callaway replaced Cotter when the score reached 79, and McCartney replaced Armstrong at 91, but neither could slow the scoring. When the total reached 110, Zulch was forced to leave the field for a period, but Returner was able to make it through to lunch. He moved to 31, and Faulkner was on 63, as the South Africans went to the break in a strong position at 1 for 128. Whitty was able to take his place in the field after lunch as play resumed. Faulkner was dropped by Trumper at third man after the right-hander had only added a single to his lunchtime score. Zulch moved his score into the 40s before a ball that kept low from Cotter scattered his stumps. He departed for 42, having shared a 107-run stand with Faulkner, and was replaced by Norst. He filled the same role as Zulch, playing second fiddle to the flying Faulkner. The set batsman struck Armstrong for consecutive boundaries before edging Cotter over the slips of four, moving into the 80s. Whitty and Callaway were brought on, but couldn't stop the runs flowing, with Faulkner moving through the 90s and bringing up his second test century by hitting Callaway to the leg boundary. Two more boundaries for the centurion followed off Callaway, another two off Whitty, leading to Cotter being brought back. He caught the edge, but for the second time in the day Faulkner was dropped, this time by Carter. 
At the other end, Norsa moved his score onto 33 with minimal fuss before Callaway managed to breach his defences, ending a 110-run stand between the two batsmen. Stricker joined Faulkner, and the two made it to tee without further loss at 3 for 261, with Faulkner not out on 148. Upon resumption, Armstrong bowled leg theory with a strong leg side field, which slowed the scoring, although Faulkner did bring up his 150. Stricker did most of the run making this time, but when he reached 26, he was bowled off his pads by Armstrong. Llewellyn arrived and helped take the score past 300, but was then clean bowled for 5, giving Armstrong his second wicket. McCartney and Cotter were brought back, but that only increased the scoring, with Faulkner moving to 188 as stumps were drawn, having taken the total at the end of the day for 5 for 352, taking the lead by 4 runs in the last over. The South Africans entered day 3 in a strong position. Faulkner was content to work his way to his double century in 1s and 2s, bringing it up with a single pass mid-off off Cotter. He became the fourth batsman in test to score a double century after Murdoch, Gregory and Foster. Snook was more aggressive, striking boundaries off both Cotter and Gregory. Another four for Snook off Woody took the total past 400, bringing up his own half century in the process. Woody though struck in the next over, having fought in a court in the slips for 204. He batted for over five hours and hit 26 boundaries in compiling one of the greatest test innings and he received a standing ovation from the crowd on his departure. The big hitting Sinclair joined Snook at 6 for 402. Sinclair showed his power by striking Cotter to the boundary and quickly reached double figures. McCartney was brought on to tempt Sinclair, but he was patient and waited for the bad ball to strike to the boundary. The two bats were able to make their way to lunch without being separated, with the South Africans sitting at 6 of 439. Snook started after lunch with a streaky four over the slips. Consecutive boundaries off Cotter took his score into the 70s, while Sinclair viciously hit the Australian fast man back over his head to the fence. The score moved to 469 before Witty clean bowled Snook for 77, made with 10 fours. Next ball, Witty did the same thing to the new batsman, with Schwartz departing for a golden duck. Running out of partners, Sinclair began to hit big, sending Armstrong into the members' pavilion. Armstrong managed to take the ninth wicket by clean bowling Pierce, but more big hits from Sinclair, including another six off Armstrong, took the South African score to 506 before Armstrong claimed the last wicket, trapping Pegler leg before for eight. Sinclair was undefeated on 55, having hit six fours and two sixes. Armstrong finished with four wickets, but had gone for 148 runs, whilst Witty claimed three for 81. The Australians started their second innings facing a deficit of 148. Trumper and Bardsley opened, with Trumper racing into the 20s. Bardsley was more circumspect, but a change of bowling to Schwartz saw the first wicket fall, with Bardsley smartly stumped by Sherwell for 14. The second wicket fell next ball, with Hill playing a ball from Schwartz onto his wicket. At 2 for 35, Gers joined Trumper. Despite the wickets falling, the runs flowed freely, with both batsmen going it over a run a minute. Trumper was in full flight, playing all around the wicket and looking to be in his best form. The partnership put on 50 runs in 25 minutes before Gers was out, stumped by Sherwell off shorts for 22. Newman McCartney hit a boundary, but then skied a ball off Llewellyn over the keeper's head, with Snook running around from slip to take a smart catch. The Australians were now 4 for 94, still trailing by 54 runs. Ransford joined Trumper, who had made his way to a half-century. The score quickly moved past 100 as the South Africans struggled to contain the scoring. Sinclair was brought on, but Trumper hit his first two balls for boundaries before hitting for six in his next over. Ransford played second fiddle as Trumper unleashed, racing into the 90s and wiping off Australia's deficit with a cut for four off Faulkner. He slowed a bit approaching his century, mainly dealing in singles as he brought up the milestone after two hours of the crease, his sixth in tests. Shortly afterwards, Ransford was dismissed, having made a patient 23, skying Schwartz to Sinclair at mid-on. Callaway joined Trumper, with the score at 5 for 176. Trumper continued to punish the bowling, 
taking score onto 133 at stumps, with the Australian total sitting at 208, leading by 50 runs with five wickets in hand. Another fine day awaited play, with a crowd going past 50,000 for the entirety of the test. Trumper and Callaway resumed, with Callaway playing an anchor role, whilst Trumper did most of the scoring, adding 26 of the 29 runs scored, taking his total to 159 before he was finally dismissed, chopping Faulkner onto his stumps. He batted for just under three hours, hitting 15 fours and a six, and had given no chances to the opposition. Armstrong joined Callaway, and the two continued to build the total, taking 42 risk-free runs before Armstrong began to attack. He was dropped by Schwartz attempting a big hit, and then played the well and onto his stumps for 24. Carter then became the second golden duck of the innings, skying the first ball he faced and was comfortably caught by the keeper. The Australians were now 8 for 279. Cotter took advantage of some loose balls from Llewellyn, hitting two boundaries and taking the total past 300 before it was out to an excellent catch at long on by Comamiel, subfielding for Zulch who was suffering from back spasms. Witty joined Callaway and the two managed to add 22 for the last wicket, with Callaway falling two short of 50 just after lunch, bowled by Pegler. The Australians finished on 327, with Schwartz and Llewellyn both claiming four wickets. The Australians have set the visitors a target of 170 for victory. Considering how batting had been in the match to that point, South Africa was seen as favourites to win and level the series. However, chasing small totals often does funny things to sides, and the South Africans began to wilt under the pressure. Sherwell and Stricker open, but Cotter trapped Stricker LBW for a second ball duck in the opening over. Faulkner came in at three, but batted completely opposite to his first innings, scratching around and seemingly afraid to play an attacking stroke. Most runs were coming in the forms of buys as Cotter and Witty put the strangle on. Sherwell managed to find a couple of boundaries, but was bowled by Witty for 16 and also managed two before Cotter struck his pad and successfully appealed for LBW. Sinclair hit three off his first ball, was out for that score in the next over, becoming the third LBW victim, this time to Witty. The South Africans had lost four wickets for 29 runs. New batsman Llewellyn started positively, overtaking Faulkner's score of six in only three balls. Faulkner managed to grind his way to eight before he attempted a big shot, but could only spoon Witty to mid-on. His innings had taken almost an hour to compile, a far cry from his free-flowing first innings performance. Snook replaced him and for a while things were steady, the South Africans making to tee at 5 for 62. Following the interval, Witty caught the edge of Snook's bat and had him caught at slip for 9, whilst Llewellyn was clean bowled by Cotter for 17, the top scorer of the innings. Cotter had Schwartz caught for 7, whilst Witty finished off the innings with consecutive wickets. The South Africans could only manage 80 to go down by 89 runs. The Australian bowlers had run rampant, with Witty taking his best figures of 6 to 17, whilst Cotter had claimed the other 4. The nerves had got to the South Africans, meaning they were now 2-0 down going into the third test at Adelaide, beginning in only two days. This is the end of part one of our episode covering the 1910-11 tour by South Africa. Part two, where we will see if the tourists can recover, will be out next week. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.